0: Good morning to everyone except for uh, Clay Travis and Rudy Gobert. It is Monday morning, which means we are diving behind the scenes of fantasy football, behind the business. This is a series that we've had going on for about a month and a half now, and we are interviewing some of the top people in the fantasy sports, fantasy football space in particular. Nothing to do with players, nothing to do with coaches, nothing to do with teams, nothing to do with the NFL draft. This is all behind the business. This is the advertising, the marketing, the sponsorships, the engagement, the social. And today, we have Mr. Pat Mayo. He is all over the space. He has been in the content game for a while. He has obviously top quality production. He runs the Pat Mayo Experience, which is his show on his side of things. Someone that dives very heavily into fantasy football, big into the DFS and the betting portion of things. And we'll talk about the evolution of where the industry is going very into golf. So that's an avenue that he has been able to exploit, which I see it gaining more and more popularity as, as the years have gone by. And it's an interesting spot to be in because we see football having such a rise in popularity, but there are other sports that are starting to kind of gain steam a little bit, and you've been able to get your hand into the whole golf thing, so I'm, I'm intrigued to talk about that, but we have a lot of a lot of good stuff to get off on our plates today. So, Pat, I'm, uh, I'm happy to welcome you into the headquarters for the Behind the Business of Fantasy Football series. How you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. I, I've really enjoyed this series so far because one of the main things that I've noticed is that everyone really comes from just sort of a different background of how they got into it. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of have that, like where you can look at everyone and say everyone looks kind of similar but the backgrounds seem to be completely different and the different business approaches people have taken from their experience for whatever else they used to do and translating that onto a fantasy football product the business of fantasy football I think it's actually helped the industry a lot because back when I first started writing there was a lot of like basically people writing for free on the internet or like lawyers who would go home (laughs) after work and hate their lives and write about fantasy football Uh, so you have a lot of smart people who ended up coming into the space, especially now like a lot of ex-finance people started playing on DraftKings when that first Mm -hmm. started to launch or came over from poker who understood that side of the business and selling subscriptions kind of thing. It's all kind of melted into one thing. So it's kind of encouraging. Like business has been good.
0: And that's really like the, the gist I'm going for with this series is I want to, you know, show people that no matter where you're coming from, if you're a blogger, if you're a podcaster, if you're a producer, a content creator in general, there are avenues for you to follow your passions and your dreams within this space. And most of the stuff that we talk about today, we'll be able to venture into other industries and other spaces as well. So you, you mentioned that you kind of started off as a writer within the space. Is that kind of the come up for you to where you got to today?
1: yeah when i was in my final year of college i had zero job prospects and i had a lot of free time on my hands so i just started writing about fantasy football on a blog that was my own and Basically, I just wrote every day, just every day there'd be a new post about, it's a lot of the same stuff that I still do now, waiver wire and rankings and spread picks, that kind of thing. This was in 2009, Uh, and I was able to kind of parlay that through, got a job at a different site, still didn't pay anything, but at least it was a bit more exposure, and then that site got bought out by another site started to write for Roto Experts, and that didn't pay anything at first. And I ended up going to broadcasting school in 2010, and that's where everything kind of changed because I was able to get at the very forefront of digital video and even podcasting. I think my podcast, Pat Mayo Experience, started in 2011. So it's been almost a full decade of building that up and just having the same feed for the past 10 years. You're gonna accumulate a lot of people along the way.
0: It's interesting that you started off so early, and you got in the podcast game very early too. I think that like when you're trying to move into the space nowadays, it's so hard because it's, it's so saturated. And one of the lessons that I try to kind of convey to people that are breaking through is that, you know, whatever the person that you look up to or the person that you're trying to become in a sense you can't get to where they are by doing the same things that they did. So you're always needing to look at these platforms before they pop off, right? Like you were podcasting back in 2011. And if you told people that in 2011, they would be like, this guy's fucking nuts. Like there's no way podcasting is gonna be a big thing, but we've seen over the last three to five years, it's absolutely exploding. It's my only way that I consume content. Like I only do it through audio. I think that says a lot just to the subject subjectivity of our audience in a whole, just like you know, the fantasy football space, because now we have people blogging, we have people podcasting, we have people doing video and i still to this day like i see popular people within the industry like shitting on on video on the video side of fantasy football like no one wants to watch that shit they want to hear it or they want to read it i'm just like you're not the one that gets to say that the market is the one that gets to say that in terms of like what you see yourself as now you've grown yourself into like a real solidified businessman between mayo media pat mayo experience and you know your partnership with DraftKings. do you consider yourself just straight up still uh, someone who's just passionate about fantasy sports? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you a content creator? Are you like a producer or director at heart? Like what would you describe yourself as if you could?
1: I would say that I'm a content creator and that goes hand in hand with the business. But one of the things that I think that is a lot different from me, as opposed to a lot of the people in the space, and you and I are probably actually similar in this way. Like I would now work as a two man team, but even when I was with the fantasy sports network, when I helped launch that TV channel, I was the only person who worked on my show. So that involved me producing the show, scheduling the guests, selling the ads, but building the graphics, putting the graphics in after the packs, do, doing the audio mixing, doing all The social media marketing for it. And I was still doing the audio, the video, and writing all at the same time. That now that I have someone to help me with the production, my producing partner, Paul, who does the directing, he does the graphics now. It allows me the ability to produce even more content because I don't have to spend 60 hours a week doing the actual production side of it. I can still do a bit, but I can focus on ad sales. I can focus on marketing along with the content of the show. So I think that I got a good sort of, you know, some people go to business school. I got to venture into this space that. No one really knew anything about and try to tackle every single job that went on along the way but all of it really boils down to content creation like i do consulting through my company uh, i do production setups through my company but i wouldn't know any of the stuff if i wasn't creating the content and doing all this stuff anyway so i can lend my expertise to some people trying to get into the space or people who are in the space that are looking for a bump to be like you know my video quality looks really shitty what do I do about that? It's like, well, here are three things pretty easily that you can do to upgrade the quality of your video, and I'll give out, I'll give you one out for free that a lot of people really overlook. Have good internet. You have good internet, like the best internet. It's worth spending the extra forty bucks a month to have the best speeds possible, upload and download. Like some people will say, like if you buy a camera off of Amazon and it shoots in four K or it shoots in ten eighty, like it will look good, but if you have bad internet, it will look bad. Like right. the internet is such a big part of this, and even things like upload speeds. Like I can get my videos out quickly because I have awesome internet. It doesn't take me a day to upload something. Like if I'm at home and I try to upload something, it's a bit more problematic. Like a two minute Twitter video will take me, I don't know, five minutes to upload on my shitty internet at home. When I'm at the office where I pay for the good internet, it takes like 20 seconds.
0: Yeah, you're preaching to the choir right now. When I lived in I'm in Brooklyn right now. When I lived in New Jersey, my internet was so good and I just thought I was like, "Oh, this is like typical internet." You know, I had files <laughs> and I was like, this is what internet should be and I would be able to upload if I put out a 45-minute YouTube video, it would upload in, you know, 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. And I'm like, this is this has to be typical. When I moved to Brooklyn, we didn't have files here. We had to get Spectrum. It's whatever. You know, I don't have problems with it, but it's definitely not like elite internet. So when I upload things now, it takes like an hour, 2 hours. I'm just like, this is you know, this is ridiculous because if I need to get the content, if I need to make the content an hour before it goes out, then I'm gonna need to push that back two or three hours. That's so actually funny that you brought that up because that's something I've dealt with since I've moved into this apartment. Now you said you worked at the fantasy sports network, right? Yeah. So uh, when they
1: created, it was the first, they tried to launch a 24 hour, they did launch a 24 hour fantasy sports television network. It started in 2013. It launched that, was, in-
0: that was the one in Manhattan, right? In the Renaissance.
1: Yeah, it was between Toronto and Manhattan. We actually launched uh, the the first studio that was built and all the production was done out of Toronto. So when I moved back from Manhattan to Toronto, uh, I was the only employee for like six months uh, trying to get everything off the ground and like, how are we going to fill 24 hours of content uh, when no one does video? It was kind of tough at first. And then everyone kind of got into video. It made things a little bit easier. We could outsource a lot of the stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a funny, uh, I, I've been on the Fantasy Sports Network show before the one in, in Manhattan a few times this previous summer. It's a funny little setup they got over there. It's like in the middle of, a, for, for the audience members out there, it's in a hotel and it's in the middle of a, the restaurant or a restaurant or a bar or whatever. I forget what the name of it is. Do yeah, you remember the name? I, I believe it's Rockin' Riley's is the place. And it's, it's basically this big, glass, like completely clear studio and you're in there and it's almost like you're a zoo animal because people are just, you know, enjoying their lunch or their dinner or whatever. And they're watching you produce inside of the studio. And it's a very professional setup. And it was the first time I've ever been on a, a legit video production scene before. And it was kind of intimidating, but it's a cool setup over there. So, I, you know, I kind of wish you had still worked there so we could, you know, link up in New York. Are you ever in New York?
1: Uh Very rarely. Like I do, I try to do as little travel as possible because I I even have uh, like through DraftKings, I do a thing with the PGA tour now where Mm -hmm. multiple times they've sent me to the course to go shoot the two minute video I do for them every single week. But if I have to travel to a course to do, A two minute video, you know, that's a day of travel there, a day of travel back. They need to put me up in the hotel. Like, I produce all my content from my studio. If I'm in studio, I could probably do like 16 hours a week worth of shows. Frankly, that's more valuable than me traveling somewhere for three days and having two minutes of content.
0: With the Fantasy Sports Network, you basically said you were doing everything like, every piece of the supply chain from thinking of the idea of content to actually making it into a physical piece of content that people can watch on the internet. Now, these skills, you said like making graphics, editing the audio, all these kind of things, you did not learn prior to this job, right? No, I, I learned
1: most of it in broadcasting school. So that was one of the big things. So I started writing, I was like, I, and I probably wanted when I went to broadcasting school, I thought I was like, you know, I'm going to host sports center. That's what I want to kind of go to learn.
0: Everybody, anyone that did sports, anything just wanted to be on Sports Center. That was it.
1: and, and, And like, I think I was in a class of 38, 35 people, whatever it was, split between two. And I think every single person who went there, it was sort of a congregation of everyone, like of everyone's group of friends, you were basically told, well, you know, a ton about sports, so you should go to like sports broadcasting school. And that's what it was. It was a niche sports broadcasting school platform where you just basically learned the ins and outs of the industry. So everyone who went there thought that they were going to go and show up and be on camera, graduating in two years. And all of a sudden, you're going to be on Sports Center and people got some hard lessons quickly. There was a lot of like I was writing fantasy at the time I was doing football and baseball, like full throttle and a little bit of basketball too and when I got there it turns out that like 80% of the people actually didn't know anything about sports they just thought they knew a lot about sports especially in today's like where the media has actually evolved you can't pass At some points, you could have passed yourself off as someone who knew a little bit about sports, is like very casually, but been a good broadcaster. Someone would write you a script. You'd read it out of the prompter. You'd read some highlights, and that's all you would do. I feel like those jobs don't really exist anymore. Like there's an authenticity that you need to have with your product part of that is actually knowing the ins and outs of everything like people can sniff out a fraud pretty quickly
0: yeah well i mean i think that's like a big reason why espn and and those platforms are starting to slowly die off is that not that the people on there aren't authentic or don't know what they're talking about in a sense but the brand itself like espn makes them hold back on like who they are personally right like you don't get to actually see who these people are for the most part on their shows and people are kind of turned off by that non-authentic feel and they turn to you know the youtubes and they turn to content creators who are not afraid to to show that side of them you know you when you go to you go to this school and you're like i want to be an espn broadcaster or whatever let me ask you for the position that you're in right now we'll get more into specifics in terms of like what you're doing outside of just some of the content you put out had espn offered you a job as an anchor now you would say no i'm assuming right i would
1: say no that's correct unless they said here is here's a check with a lot of zeros behind it uh just it's as i found out working my way through in the industry is that like being a personality is far more valuable than the job you have like scott van pelt hosting sports center is you know, worth a lot more to them than if they had just they could hire me like the equivalent of me to hire at like sports center i'm not exactly sure what they get paid anymore but i i assume it's like 70 75k a year a nice living but scott van pelt probably makes like five million for hosting the same yeah. show <laughs> Because he's a personality, like right. having the personality, having your own brand is so valuable versus just being a generic talking head.
0: That's a theme that comes up on here a lot too. The whole personal brand thing, and you're so right because, like, Scott Van Pelt has that. You know, they do the the Sports Center at midnight now, and I rarely watch Sports Center Sports Center anymore. But if it's around midnight and I'm about to go to sleep, I'll always pop that on because it's Scott Van Pelt. But if it was someone else on the show, I don't know if I really care because he's one of the guys that's been able to successfully put his personality on air while still being like you know in that in that vein of like political correctness that ESPN kind of demands you to be so when you're building your own personal brand like you get to decide everything around you right like you've created your own studio in a sense so where where do you work out of right now like where is that studio
1: so uh, I have a studio built in downtown Toronto. Just I rent some office space, built a studio in the space, all the production gear is in here. It's basically a set, a bunch of lights, three cameras, and a, you know, the production set up a little further back in the room, but it's not a very big space.
0: How long have you been like working on perfecting that studio? Because you've had, you've had like very good production and obviously some of it's because of your education. You have a background with production. How long have you been trying to perfect the whole Pat Mayo Experience Production Center?
1: it's ongoing one of the main when I said I did everything at fantasy the the whole thing was I was doing the writing for the site I was a producer there and I was an on-air talent I was our lead anchor for both baseball and football when we first started and we would produce basically how an hour of content every day but one of the big mistakes and like the fantasy sports network as it exists now is not the same as it was then like it was a terrestrial tv channel that you could like go onto your TV flick through the channels and it would pop up. Right. Uh, so I learned a lot about how do you get on certain providers, uh, cable systems, that kind of thing. And that process is like out of control hard. But the people that originally had started the company had owned all these different fringe channels and they didn't quite realize that no one really gave a shit about TV anymore. I remember one of the very first work gatherings that we had after the company had launched It's probably like three, four months after. And the guy that actually owned it, this billionaire guy, real good dude, very nice guy. Uh, he kind of asked everyone, all the employees. He's like, "Oh yeah, how often do you watch Fantasy Sports Network like on your TV?" And like we were a group of Uh-oh. wildly <laughs> underpaid 27 and unders at the time, or 20, I think I was 28. Not a single person had cable.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I really enjoyed the experiences I had doing the shows there but when i walked out of there someone who has the point of view that i do now that i'm gaining a little bit more experience in the industry and understand how you know these partnerships work and how some of the brands and companies have built themselves up i look at you know a company like that not necessarily just them but companies who you said you know the owner is a billionaire I come out of there and i've never sat down with like venture capitalists before but i'm i'm assuming because the only the only way i think that they monetize is through all of these advertisements and stuff right if you're watching it you get advertisements every like 10 minutes they do like a little commercial break i'm like that's probably the way that they bring in most of their revenue so the upfront costs must be straight up that that billionaire owner whoever it is just throwing a ton of money at the studio to build the studio to have the employees or whatever and i look at brands like that and i'm like in the long term there's no way they survive it seems like they're probably losing money month over month and i'm like at the end of you know the discussion it's like you're you're not a business if you're losing money month over month right
1: And that was the big thing. That's why it went out of business. So the fantasy sports network, as you know it now, is a completely digital platform that exists out of that studio in Manhattan. I believe that they also have a studio, one of the sports books in New Jersey as well. And they do take periodic breaks so they can sell ads, but they're constantly on the air. When we first started this, they tried to run it like a TV sports station. So in Canada, we had three sports stations at the time. We had TSM, which is our ESPN, same owners. We have another one owned by the biggest media conglomerate, Rogers Sportsnet. And there was another place called The Score, which was more of like a startup, did really well. People are very familiar with The Score app. When they sold The Score, they sold it for like close to like a billion dollars. And the one thing in the contract that they didn't sell is they kept the rights to the app which I think is now worth like $5 billion. So Jeez, okay. uh, savvy move, savvy move for the guys that own the score. They just merged with Roger Sportsnet. So we ended up hiring as producers, a lot of these people that had been at these places before. And what they brought to them with the table in 2014 was, Hey, we're going to do a half hour show. It has three segments. Here are the three topics that we're going to talk about in block one, block two, here are the three we're going to get all of like, if we're talking baseball, we're talking Justin Verlander and pitchers in segment one. We need to build the graphics for Justin and Verlander. So we can overlay that while you're doing it. They built the studio, which was, it was a studio that was in place and they did like upgrades to it and it cost so much money. I think it was the budget for like what we had allocated for the first three years yeah. was the cost of the studio. And we were only producing two segmented shows a day. And I was doing my podcast at the time from the studio and the podcast, I was looking like no one was watching this on TV. I was looking at the YouTube numbers for each of these segments and they weren't doing very well. Then I looked at my podcast numbers. I was like, This is doing really well. And it's just me talking for an hour about fantasy football. So all I did was I talked to the boss that was up there. I was like, can I get like three cameras? I don't know, 300 bucks a piece. As long as they shoot in HD, whatever, find a computer to hook it up to. Can we turn this closet into a studio? and that's essentially what we did and then by the time that i left we were producing five hours a day of content but it was all out of the shitty closet studio rather than this gigantic studio which they spent all the money on because it took three cameramen behind all the cameras six people in a control room in order to shoot it the audio that you needed an audio guy to ride the boards because it was a big studio like the actual production cost of all of this was so out of control where in the other studio I could switch everything with a wireless keyboard below the frame in the camera. Like if my hand was here, I could have switching cameras just going like this. No one would ever know the difference. I could record all my own shows. I could call up the guests, do the mic check, just like I do now. Mm -hmm. And that's what I ended up translating over. And I think that's how they shoot their stuff now out of the Manhattan studio. It has a limited crew. It's not just one person, but you can have three people on the desk and like two people behind the scenes and shoot as much content as you want.
0: Yeah, there was no one in the actual room with us recording. It was just like us and the cameras, us whoever was at the table. But the control room was unlike anything I've actually seen before, because I'd never been in a real studio. So I went down there, like Frank Sample showed me around, and there was like 10 people or so in the room. And they're like, yeah, these are who are controlling all this stuff. And I'm just like, wow, this is this is insane. I didn't realize like this much work went into just producing it because like I'm doing YouTube. I just throw a little webcam up and a, and a mic and I'm like putting out content, right? I didn't realize like so much went into making these things that come out. And you referred to having some help with you behind the scenes. So you have Paul takes a lot of the work off your plate. You said now, is Paul a full-time employee with you?
1: Yeah, so so Paul and I both uh, work on the Pat Mayo experience, um, and he does all the production stuff. The ability for him to do all that stuff, the stuff that I had previously been doing at Fantasy, like I said, it just it. it enables us to both it's still incredibly time consuming even splitting up the work between us but like he's directing all the shows he's live putting in the graphics. so he builds all the graphics beforehand so if we're doing you're like i do the ranking show with jake seeley every week during the fantasy football season like mm-hmm. i need to come up with the rankings and we shoot that show on a tuesday afternoon so i basically need to have my rankings done by monday morning so i can send him the rankings he turns the rankings into graphics we do the show with jake We start doing it but he's overlaying all the graphics as we're speaking because of that turnaround time that i talked about like him being able to do all that stuff live as we go saves us basically when we're done the show unless there's like a a mistake on one of the graphics or we make a bad switch we can go back and fix that that isn't super time consuming we can just make note of the time code hey we'll go to 2307 we'll cover that up not a big problem but before we would just record it raw switching in between the cameras, and then go back and overlay all the graphics on it. And just that one thing, like the pre-production part of it, saves us probably four hours of post-production, because now all we have to do is put it on a timeline, adjust the audio, get all the background noises out of it, and we don't actually have to add graphics. When I was doing it myself, I'd have to scan through the entire show, be like, oh, a graphic goes there. Well, what graphic do I need? Now I gotta go build that graphic. Now I'm gonna go put it back in. Like, that process took like eight hours. It It was
0: horrible. There's nothing worse than the whole like graphic process, especially with like people like us who we're not designers. We're not UX UI guys. So to like be able to have to figure that stuff out is so time consuming and usually so ugly at the beginning. So when you're starting out, just know that your graphics when you make them are going to be really, 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 really shitty, but you'll get better as the time goes on. So with Paul, you guys work together at the fantasy sports network. You said,
1: yeah, he was actually at the sister. We actually went to broadcasting school together. When I was at fantasy, there was two companies there. There was one, the 24 hour, uh, combat sports channel the fight network and then we had fancy fight network still exists and had been around previously that one actually I think makes money so they were able to keep <laughs> people around but okay. he had been working there uh, as a producer and editor and uh, sound mixer so it it was a really good it was funny it was like school after school so you went to broadcasting school you learned all this stuff about how to do it and working at a place like that rather than a really big network you had to do so many jobs that you did the jobs of five people regardless of who you were some people did more some people did a little bit less but you got your hands on everything and learning about it there you not able to necessarily perfect the skills, but you were competent at everything. That if something came up, you knew how to do something on the fly, you could figure it out on the fly, or you had enough people around who had tried their hand at doing that, they could, you know, at least give you some assistance when it went to it. Like I didn't know anything about clearing out the background audio or if I fucked up my audio that day and it happens, like. If you don't have a producer listening in, you don't really know how the recording's gonna sound. Right, so I recorded two or three. The show. Yeah. So I recorded two or three shows at the very beginning when I first started doing the podcast as a video that I would listen back, like, oh my God, the guests like you can barely hear them. And I'm yelling into the microphone. How do I even that out? <laughs> but we had a really good audio, like a post-production audio editor who was basically mm-hmm. like, Look, you can't fix this per se but here's the best way to go about it in terms of leveling your audio and then getting rid of like the buzz that would come for leveling one side of an audio, equalizing it all. Like I had no idea how to do any of that. But there were enough people there who did that you just pick this stuff up along the way. And it's really led to like the success that my show has been able to have is that Paul and I are a two-man team. If we were an eight-man team, it wouldn't be viable to do our show.
0: Yeah, I mean, that stuff's so important. It's always a shit show at the beginning, trying to learn all the different facets of it. But it's so important over the long run because in the landscape we're in with content creation, there are just so many like... Nooks and crannies that go into actually producing a show that if you don't know one part, the show could fall apart. Like you said, the audio—if you're not listening to it, how are you going to know? So you might film something that's—I've done this plenty of times where I filmed something that was like 45, 60 minutes long. At the end of it, the audio was just like not on at all. So it's just blank. It's just me into the camera for 60 minutes, and I'm like, "Fuck, I have to redo that." And that—you know—that—that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen in the beginning. But if you try to learn every part of it up front, it's going to put you way ahead in the long term. It's definitely a marathon thing when it comes to this. So you guys worked together you went to school together was there a point when you were at fantasy sports network did you go straight from fantasy sports network to like working exclusively on the pat mayo experience were you did you guys like have that show up and then you were like oh i'm seeing enough success with this that i could probably pivot off and do it on my own
1: No, so what ended up happening was like I actually had the podcast. My my went to a two year program, the second year of the program, because I was able to access their equipment there and actually make it sound good. And at the time, even now, like you hear podcasts, it's the single one piece of advice I would give to anyone doing a podcast that if it doesn't sound good, don't do it. Because yeah, if I I, if I if if
0: audio like that, you have one job; it's to make the audio good.
1: But but there are so many podcasts that just sound horrible. It could have the best. It could be the best content of all time the best advice doesn't matter what it is if it sounds like shit I don't want to listen to it
0: that's such a problem with people that have guests on the show too I listen to a lot of fantasy football podcasts and you know in our industry everyone's just like oh come on my show come on my show and if there's like three or four guys there's always going to be one or two people that have a shitty mic and like every time they come on I'm like 15 seconds skip 15 seconds skip 15 seconds skip because I'm not (laughs) trying to listen to like the shaky annoying voice that vibrates off it so yeah I mean you can get that stuff down pack early on and it'll save you a lot of time and frustration in the long Run and, and last week uh, I had Joe Holka on for this interview series and we talked a lot more in depth about setups in terms of different mics and, and webcams and the actual technical stuff behind it. So if you guys want to go check out last week's episode, talk more about that, helping you guys out like set up the entire audio process.
1: Well, it's funny that you mentioned Joe because Joe and I I remember when Joe first started getting the setup that he has now. He
0: uh, mentioned he mentioned you, which is why he was like, yeah, Pat was someone that really helped me out. And the, when you first mentioned, you're like, yeah, I like to help people out and tell them like three things that they could do right off the bat with their video or audio or whatever. Joe was like, yeah. Yeah, Pat was really helpful when I first started out
1: yeah because I remember watching like I, I've known Joe for a while now I always have mm-hmm. him on the show and like I I was looking at his background because like obviously I when I'm looking at like your background or I can always see the guest background I uh, don't like the corner of my eye because I actually have to look into the camera the entire time okay. when I'm actually doing the show like I could see I was like you have no depth of field behind you like it I know you're not sitting right next to the wall, but it looks like you're sitting right next to the wall. Like, how can we figure out, like, what are the dimensions of your setup? How can we get you farther out from the wall and then create some depth behind you? And that it's little stuff like that. Think of it like as a football team. Like, if you build out from the lines, you have a good D line and you have a good O line and you have a good quarterback. That's really the basis of building a really good football team. And the stuff that people do in terms of broadcasting, especially digital broadcasting, if you're doing it from your house, little things like that really go a long way it's like i I have guests on from time to time and like they'll be on video they're not used to being on video and they have a window that's open right next to them so the audio is really terrible for it and then there's like light shining on one side of their face just like throw a black sheet up over that throw a piece of bristol board
0: i can't tell if you're being serious or you're just naming all the things that are in my video right now
1: I'm not, I actually can't see your video right now, but like, oh,
0: okay, okay. I was gonna, I was gonna put you on the spot and be like, okay, while we're here, like, give me three tips that you could see within my range of background. But if you're not looking at the video, we won't, we won't put you through that experience.
1: No, as a guest, I can only see myself. I can't see your end because uh, I can, if I was behind the production side of everything, I could see your end, but like stuff like that, It goes a long way, like trying to, like we have blackouts over all the windows in this studio, like being able to control all the light. Like I have four huge lights around me. uh, And one of the biggest things that I found is lighting your background. So the wall behind me right now is probably, I don't know, three feet behind me. But having this on a swivel, like if I put it like this, and now you're picking up some of the light from overhead uh, in it. So you'd have to like kind of correct that out, hide it behind me so no one notices. But just having that TV on an angle a little bit out creates depth these shelves behind me I I like n 64 and everything and wrestlers but they're really only there to create more of an optical illusion to make the studio look bigger than it is like the posters on the wall are covering the brick wall that I used to have but that dartboard is an actual like physical piece that's out a little bit so you can just tell different levels of depth behind and then it separates me from the bunch so I'm lit one way from the lights, but the background is actually lit with a separate set of lights that make them stand out. So there is a bit of like shadow depth in between me and the back wall, and that can really create a lot of stuff. And that was some of the stuff that I talked to Holka about is like build up your background, but also have stuff that's pressed against the wall, stuff that comes out a little bit from the wall, and then light your background with different lights than you light yourself. And then just the optical illusion of the camera will make it seem like you're further out from the wall. And just that makes it look more like a real studio.
0: Interesting. All right. Yeah. So we're actually moving into a studio in Manhattan for the upcoming year. And I will definitely be reaching back out to you for some tips because I have no idea how to start. I'm lucky I have a a window next to me that gives me a lot of natural light. So I don't really need to do too much to make it seem like, you know, I know what I'm doing lighting wise. So it's probably better that you can't see me to kind of shit on the setup that I have right now. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll be reaching back out for some tips on that because it seems like you've got the setup there nicely. And, and I commented on Joe's. That's why I was like, it seems like you just look at it, right? As someone who's consuming the content, you kind of take it for granted. You're like, yeah, this is a cool setup. It's nicely done. And I was like, Joe, the people that are watching this probably can't imagine the things that are in front of you right now, like the amount of lights beaming down on you, and like the camera and all that stuff, and he's like, "Yeah, it's actually crazy." That's when he kind of dove into talking about you and and like how you helped him and, and the lighting and the setup, and I could I could see a lot of the the inspiration of his kind of comes from what you have there and and probably what you told him with the studio. The reason I kept asking about about Paul is because we're trying to expand a little bit as a brand, and as I'm building my team, I'm having not difficulty, but I come to like a crossroads with like, how do I invest properly into, I would say, like, how how much. Would you say percentage-wise, maybe you invest back into your into your business? What comes through like the Pat Mayo experience or Mayo Media, and then you immediately put back into whether it's equipment or people or or whatever?
1: I think it really depends on the moment. Like startup cost for a lot of this is very high because equipment itself, if you get good enough stuff, is going to be somewhat expensive. Like you can do it on the cheap, like that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you want to really upgrade the quality of your production, like I'm shooting right now, when I was talking to the footballers in Vegas, I think we. on the same cameras we have like the black magics and they're like 1500 bucks a piece you don't need cameras as nice as that but like where i was just doing a setup for the first time i know that they're reliable they're very compatible with mac which i work on and they have all the outlets like when i was at fantasy we had like four handhelds that i put on a tripod and put an hdmi cable that just ran in like you can do it that way too and buy yourself a $300 camera and as long as it shoots like no people really get freaked out they're like well I need a 4k camera it's like no one fucking watches anything in 4k (laughs) especially internet videos you don't need a 4k camera an hd camera will suffice and it's that part where I think I actually had an advantage in production versus a lot of people because I had this production background like I know what lights to buy because I've seen a lot of lights being used. At first I didn't what cameras I need to use, what tripods I need to buy, temperature of lighting because a lot of people make the mistake they're like, well, I just bought lights, we're good to go. But like you buy one of those like stand up IKEA lights and put a normal light bulb in it and shine it on yourself and then you try to get like a light off Amazon which is LED and then those two lights aren't the same temperature then like you look blue when you go onto <laughs> the screen. Like you you need to be able to figure all that stuff out and not I was able to invest a lot at the beginning and not have to I like, Upkeep stuff if stuff goes wrong or breaks, or there's some sort of bit of new technology. Like, I had lavalier microphones when I first started this show in this studio, Mm -hmm. and they were just dog shit sound quality. They weren't bad if it was me talking to the camera like I am right now, but if I had anyone in the studio, this studio is not equipped for lav mics. Like, lav mics are really tough to get right, and you actually do need to buy expensive ones if you want them to be directional. If not, they start picking up sound, everyone sounds hollow. So, I had to go out and reinvest in microphones like this to make them directional so if people are talking into them you can only hear that person that i'm not picking up on the microphone that's across from me it's only picking up here and you know the quality of the audio of the show really dipped for about six months and people gave me shit for it i could hear it and i was like i don't know how to fix this uh and then i started like brainstorming what do i do i talked to a few friends like get these mics they're not like super duper expensive they're not like holka has the really good one the joe rogan mic those yeah, that's are like
0: what this one is you can't see me but i have the same one as him
1: yeah, they're like, like 500 bucks a piece.
0: Yeah, well, the mic itself is about 400, but you need to connect it to an audio interface and a cloud lifter. And you know, before you know it, it adds up to like eight to nine.
1: Yeah, so I bought these shore mics because uh, I went and talked to the audio guy and he was pitching me on the very same mic that you're using. Those are the ones that we used to use at Fantasy. I was like, I don't, I, I don't want to spend like 2K because we had to buy like four of them to right. make sure that we had enough going around. What's an equivalent in terms of like sound quality if this is what I'm doing? Like I don't need at the very top of the line, if it's just going to be me and one other person or me and two other people speaking into this microphone. He's like, well, these shore mics are like a third of the price. He's like, they're 90% as good. I was like, yeah, let's give these a try. I bought one, one tested it. I was like, sounds fine. Directional works great. Let's go buy the other two. So the problem is that if people make a mistake buying the equipment and then they don't have the money to replace that, if it doesn't sound good, then you really dig yourself into a really big hole.
0: Yeah, me and Joe talked about that too, how most of the mics you can get, even if they're like USB mics, will give you 70 to 80% of the quality that these ones up front give you. So when you're starting off, I would say like, you know, you sunk a lot of money into the production up front, but that's also because you had a background, you knew what you were looking for when you had to buy. So for the people that are starting, I would say, you know, money wise, save your money as much as you can. Don't buy, use the free software, use a USB mic, use a, a webcam, like I said, last in last week's episode, that's $70 that give you pretty good picture quality. Try to find some natural lighting and you could really put together a little bit of a production studio in itself for very, 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 very cheap. I think like when you're starting out, focusing on your content, making sure the content that you actually put out is the best that it could possibly be with good production quality. You know, as you expand and as you've been doing this for years and years and years, you're going to start upgrading your stuff like i've been doing youtube videos for maybe like four years now or so i just got this mic a couple weeks ago so it's not like this was the first thing i bought and then i tried to make it fit around everything else so i would just say again for beginners don't focus on the production quality as much if your content is not up to par there now it's funny that you brought up talking with the the footballers in vegas do you uh, we actually met in vegas for a, a few minutes i don't know if you remember this at all how drunk was i yeah that that's a thing it was was, uh it was like it was maybe like 2 a.m at the what was the the hotel was the link right
1: yeah was it was i i was playing blackjack with siege around that time i think and smoking a lot
0: yeah so we were outside i think you were smoking i'm not even i have no idea i don't really smoke so i don't know why i was outside maybe i was smoking at the time i i only i'll only like do you remember yes no
1: Yeah, yes, now that this clicks back in. I only talked to one person outside of the link in between like all the (laughs) hotels on that walkway. So it had to have been you. It
0: had to have been me. Yeah, it was like, it was probably like 1 or 2 a.m. and we were both definitely pretty drunk at that point. And I'm pretty sure I like tried having this conversation while we were outside, which had no business taking place at the time. So I was just kind of curious if you remember that or not. Kind of pumped up that I was able to to get you uh, onto the show regardless of how that first impression went, which I uh, can't say was a a dazzling one, but uh, hopefully we'll get you a- recreate that
1: it's funny with the conferences like that like you it's tough like you end up no matter who you are you end up meeting so many people you want to be able to connect with everyone and but like there's just especially because the amount of booze that's flying around like i am sure that i had like 10 or 20 conversations with people that i just it's not that i don't remember because i was drunk i don't remember because i probably had like 500 conversations with people that if uh, i should have just been like jotting this stuff down the entire time i think people do do that i try to think like i can remember this stuff but my memory is like i'm getting old like my memory is not good anymore
0: I was actually only there for that night so I definitely we didn't meet like prior to that I I flew in at like 5 p.m. maybe and it was when the conference was already over so I just kind of met everybody at the link afterwards I had way more fun there than I originally thought I I was going to just because I mean I interact with the the industry itself I guess like on Twitter and whatnot but for the most part I was like this is kind of weird because it's gonna be my first time in Vegas so when I saw you outside I was like oh I I like I know Pat Mayo from just who you are online and like following you on social media so I was like I'm gonna go say hi I hope I don't like embarrass myself and sound weird and shit so i just wanted to see uh, i i who- and i hope i was friendly. No, you you were fine. You were fine. I mean in, in terms of like the context of the conversation, it like i'm i'm glad that no one like videotaped it cuz i don't even want to know like <laughs> what it sounded like to be honest. <laughs> All right, let's let's get back into some real talk here. So, i'm um, i'm curious as to your involvement with DraftKings. Obviously, you guys have some kind of official partnership. Is the Pat Mayo experience exclusively owned by DraftKings? Cuz if you go on the DraftKings YouTube page, it's basically 90% the Pat Mayo experience. When you search for Pat Mayo on YouTube, it's their page that comes up, so you dominate the content on their page. So, can you like break down for the audience and for myself because I'm very interested here, what the actual partnership is between you and DraftKings?
1: So, uh the show is the video version of the show currently, as it stands, is owned by DraftKings. So I produce the show for them. They air it on whatever channels that they want to air it on. And that is, you know, they do a contract with my media company. Through the media company, I produce the show for them. But I own the audio to the show. I've always owned my own audio. So when I leave DraftKings, all of the video will remain with them. If I ever leave DraftKings, who knows? I might be here forever. But the audio will just come with me. So I won't lose anyone that I've piled up over the years. And the thing that I found out more so uh, especially over like, the last four or five years, is own as much of your own content as you can. Like that's really where all the value is. Like when I do ad sales, like I do work with even for the audio, I work in conjunction with DraftKings. If they you know, come to me and they say, "Hey, Adidas wants to sponsor your show," I'm like that's great. Let's figure out how to make this work. But I can also go out and find other places to be like, "Hey, do you want to you know, work with Midroll or work with one of these live read companies in order to get?" ads onto the show. I try to keep my shows pretty as much ad-free as I can. I did start tinkering tinkering around with the idea that instead of selling one 60-second like ad halfway through the show, which you, know, you talked about this skip ahead 15 seconds, I have a skip ahead minute button. Mm-hmm. I just changed my settings because that will basically skip through an entire ad if you're listening to it. So if I'm doing that, the podcast that I listen to, I know everyone's doing that for my show too. So I started to incorporate or a few live reads that are very quick, but the 10 to 15 second ad, instead of doing it once for 60 seconds, I'll be like, hey, I'll do it three times for 15 seconds. You get 15 seconds less for your buck, but people will actually listen to your ads because by the time they go to take their phone out of their pocket to go skip it, the ad's already over
0: that's interesting I've, I've never actually thought about that I for people out there normally when you work with the advertisers they they want like one of three things it's either the pre-roll ad which means you read it right before the episode starts so as soon as like if you guys have ever turned on a podcast and they immediately start reading some kind of ad that's called a pre-roll and those almost a hundred percent of the time get skipped immediately I'm not really sure why companies even do that stuff you have the mid-roll as he said you know somewhere in the middle of the podcast or the YouTube video you start talking about the company that's sponsoring your, your video and that usually goes on 60 seconds or whatever kind of deal you have set up with the partner and then you have at the end of that video you could throw some some ads there too and based on where they are and the length of them the the expense will be different or in terms of like what they're going to pay you you touched on something where you said like Own as much of your content as you possibly can, which is why I was intrigued by the fact that you sold the video rights to DraftKings. Now, was it if you can go? uh, I don't want to like put you in a weird spot with the whole DraftKings. No, no, the the the
1: the answer would be if I had negotiated properly that I could bring the video with me, obviously I would have done that. But at the time when I ended up signing with DraftKings and leaving fantasy, I was just so gung ho to get away from fantasy that I was like, whatever, let's go, let's do this. I'm it'd be no different than if I did a show for ESPN. Let's say because ESPN Plus has come after like Ariel Hawani, Katie Nolan, like these types of people who did own their own content and then they sold it off to ESPN uh, to do a show for them and then they'll own the library of it. Like there is an incentive to do that because the way that I always looked at it was DraftKings is a bigger platform than I currently was at. And if I do own my audio, it's better exposure for me. They'll pay me to do it, that's great. I have access to their channels, their wide distribution, that you know, that's sometimes owning your content is key. The way I thought about it was, if my video content, when I left Fantasy, because I had built up their YouTube channel, uh, I didn't get to take any of that with me. So I'm going to DraftKings, I think they had like 43,000 subscribers when I came on board, they have 110 now. That's me building an audience for them, but also using their resources at the same time to promote myself. So it's kind of a give and take situation when you deal with bigger companies like that so if it was a very small company who would come to approach me for something like that there's no way that's going to happen like i'm going to own my own content you can air it on yours, but I will own it.
0: That's what I figured. If like DraftKings came to you, of course, you know, with the that like speck in your eye, you're like, oh my god, it's DraftKings. They want to buy my my show, and they're going to give me money, and their whole audience is going to see what I'm doing. But I just feel like when you have your when you own your own stuff, you have so much leverage, and you could, you know, long term, that's the play, of course, because you get to put it wherever you want. If DraftKings wants to use it but not own it, you'll probably have enough leverage to to make a partnership with that. So you would say it was just like the fact that, in a sense, you were kind of inexperienced with partnerships like that.
1: Yeah, and, like, I didn't have an agent or anything like that. I was inexperienced with it, but I would take the deal again kind of okay. thing. And because I've now, like, three years later, I look at myself, like, I am far better off by going to DraftKings, the exposure that that has given me, the fact that they were just like, hey, put up the Pat Mayo experience on the YouTube channels. We'll run it live on the app. You can access it through their Facebook page, which has, like, a million followers. Like
0: Did you know, they have people – at DraftKings helping you out with the show now? Did they have like a video editor or something doing, taking that stuff off your plate?
1: No. So, uh, the, uh, when I went into the actual deal, uh, cause they're all located in Boston and like, they came after me like uh, two years previous it was like, Hey, we want you to move to Boston. You'll do everything out of here. It was really tough mm-hmm. getting a work visa at the time for myself for internet only stuff. If they had been on TV at the time, uh, getting the visa would have been super simple. But where I was digital only based on what I was going to do for them, like moving from, I was on TV in Canada and the US between that channel, but I'd be taking myself off TV to do digital only. And then the immigration code at the time just had nothing for that because it really wasn't that big of a thing. It would be, I was put into the same bucket as people from, I don't know, Bangladesh who were great at the cello. It would be like a a very special exemption type of visa. Uh, Now they've actually kind of rewritten it a little bit that it's easier. And because I own a company now, it actually makes it incredibly easy. If I wanted to set up an office in the US, I could just kind of go back and forth and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. So it's been a good learning process, but I have no qualms about what I ended up doing. But the part of the agreement was that it would be me, and I would be able to bring someone else on to help me up in Toronto that I wouldn't really I can kind of I can operate independently of DraftKings because I'm not a DraftKings employee, they contract my company. So here's the money available to go out and get someone to help you out you want to build a team of five though that's going to be unacceptable but you can bring in one person if that one person can help you uh, then you can figure all this out so i went to the best person i knew
0: <laughs> so okay so the value prop exchange is basically you know you get their audience they get your content think about it and uh, i was just
1: gonna say it's basically just a marketing cost for them because if i'm only talking about DraftKings, kings right. they get the content which they can actually sell advertisements on on the video and distribute to different providers whatever it might be like i don't know how much money they get for putting my stuff up on on MSN, but I'm sure it's not nothing. So yeah. they can kind of quell the cost a little bit there. They can have the show sponsored and sell part of it off on that way. But the show is just pure advertising for DraftKings. I only talk about DraftKings. Play on DraftKings, do this on DraftKings.
0: Let me ask you a sort of a pivot question off that. For your content right now, what exactly are your revenue streams? Obviously you sell ads on your show, do the consulting work with your media consulting company. Do you do any straight to consumer products or services?
1: Yeah, so I'm on the Board of Governors at Fantasynational.com. It was a site that was created and I partnered up with the guy that created it on the very ground floor about three and a half years ago. So that is the one direct-to-consumer product that I have. It's a fantasy golf and golf betting stat site. We provide tools like a lineup generator for DraftKings, a tournament simulator. You can import the odds and find out that sort of thing. The one thing that we really wanted with that site that I was very adamant about, because I've had a lot of people approach me about, hey, we want you to come Join our company. We're going to put your work behind a paywall and we're going to do it that way. I was like, that. I don't have a whole lot of interest in that like mm-hmm. my goal of this is not to be behind a paywall and cut my audience and you know by 80%. I want to grow my audience. Me being free and being sort of a mouthpiece for something else is a much better way about it. So technically my show does that for DraftKings. I can be a free mouthpiece to the people to say hey you should play on DraftKings here you should here's at least the field on DraftKings here's how you play DraftKings and the same thing with Fantasy National. We have no picks. Behind our paywall, it is all tools that are customizable by people who want to know more. They can do the research themselves. We've just made it super easy for everyone to do that research, and that's what we're selling there.
0: Okay, yeah, the reason I asked because DraftKings wanted you to come work, you know, for them basically at in Boston. And this is a thought I've I've had a lot recently, and I think it works both ways as company or brand as well as a content creator i think that like for me personally i would love you know affiliates and sponsorships are a great source of revenue like we made a lot of money off them but if i could have it my way i would cut them out of the business plan altogether if i could and sell straight to consumer product that way you have the advantage of you're the own source of your income right so if you're selling a product or something you can go straight to consumer you never have to worry about a company going out of business or like, for instance, I worked with draft very closely last year and now they're no longer a company, right? Like FanDuel is going to hopefully put their platform or put the best ball on their platform, but you know, you can't really rely on that as a business. So my way of thinking is like, you have to cut out the middleman for both businesses and content creators. Like if I can cut out, the revenue source that's coming from someone else and do it direct from me to the consumer that's way better than having that extra piece in the middle of it and same thing with consumers or brands like that was a smart move by DraftKings like when you think about what is basically selling in our industry today it's content right content is the middleman so like companies like DraftKings and stuff can continue to pump out products and services but the way I look at it is like they need to cut out you know if you want to if you want to advertise on your channel first for instance right a, a company comes to you says Pat we want to do a 60 second read and in the middle of the show, we're going to pay you, you know, whatever it is, $30 CPM cost per cost per a thousand downloads or whatever, right? This is how much it's going to cost. So you'll, you'll give them either guaranteed number of downloads or views or whatever, whatever you negotiate with. But for companies, they need to, they need to have a pat within their company. They need to employ a pat. They need to employ a Nick. They need to employ the content creators. It's the same way of me cutting out the affiliates or the sponsorships, right? So I don't have to rely on them for money or income, the brands and companies out there should also be looking to create their own personalities or create their own content within their brand. And I think it's something that I brought up on uh, on the interview with, I can't remember who it was, maybe Mike Tags. I was saying like within five to 10 years, I can see a ton of businesses, not just in the fantasy space, not just in like the content creation space, but a ton of businesses outside of that starting to create studios like you have within their office that you know these might be companies that have nothing to do with fantasy sports or sports in general these are companies that starting to realize that content is the way to reach your audience right so instead of having to go out of your way to pay pat mayo 2500 for a 60 second read ad or something why don't we just make a pat mayo within our company do you think that companies are going to start looking to kind of gear more towards that avenue
1: well, without revealing any of the clients that Mayo, Mayo Media Inc. has, uh, that's actually a lot of what I've kind of dipped into when I talk about like studio creation. When I talk to Holka, like. Joe's my friend, I can help him out with that. I'm not charging him to do that. But when I see some of these smaller businesses come up who have direct to consumer products, this is actually what they're doing. They're building these different studios or podcast places inside of their offices. And like, I I mean, I don't do anything for Shopify, but I think that Shopify would be very interesting is why wouldn't they create basically a YouTube channel that's like the home shopping network? Here's what you can buy today.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Like companies will start to get more creative. They'll realize that this is the only avenue to consumers is having content creators because we're the ones that capture the, the audience any attention right so that's where all the it's no longer like we're waiting for someone at ESPN to tell you that you're good enough it's like the market is the one who decides that which is great for people like us because we don't have to go through all like the rigors and loopholes that you used to have to go through in order to get to where we are today and it's just I don't know it's just an interesting conversation it's just things that I I see happening really quickly that I think a lot of companies and brands are kind of behind the times on and and that will probably reveal itself over the next couple of years so you, you talk about your your media company Mayo Media Inc can you tell me a little bit more about exactly the services that you guys provide. It seems like you're almost in a sense, oh, I've been through the rigors of being a content creator. Now let me help you guys with this.
1: Yeah. So it's a lot of small businesses and startups that are, that are doing quite well, but want to like take their production level to the next level, or they want to figure out a way they, someone has a podcast, they've started up through a brand uh, like we just talked about. And like, how do I sell ads on that? Who do I contact? So there's the consulting part of it. Uh, there's the, the DraftKings part of it where I do the Pat Mayo experience. Uh, there's the fantasy national marketing part of it. It's all done through my business. A lot of it is just like a tax shelter as well. Like it's not really a shelter, but my, Company does these certain things. It's a business. It's far more beneficial for me to have that as a business than have it to me personally, just from a tax perspective. uh, That that really works out really well. Uh, Like I can rent the studio through the company instead of me paying it out of pocket, kind of thing. It's me paying for it, but it's just more beneficial to me to rent it through the name of the company, insurance-wise, liability-wise, all that different stuff. Like one of the greatest things that I did. Now I've always tried to do everything myself. I learned even through the business that I'm. Good at Whether it be content creation or trying to get myself a new deal, anything like that. Is I've made significant mistakes and I've been able to recover from those and learn from those. But if I'm making mistakes in my own field, what am I making mistakes with with everything else? So I went and I hired I hired a lawyer to have ready to go if I ever need them, if anything ever comes up. I have an accountant that I pay every single month. What I pay for my accountant every single month more than defers the cost of what he saves me per year of stuff I just don't know about. Like he is a legitimate professional. If I'm making money, I should hire someone to figure out how to properly allocate my revenue stream, like a financial investor. Probably not the best right now, but like I don't know anything about stocks. If it was me, I'd just be like dumping stuff into Apple or something like that. But I talked to him. He's like, "Here's your diversified portfolio of you know, <laughs> these are high risk, these are low risk." I'm like, mm-hmm. "Sure, get me a return. Like I'm paying you to get me a return. Get me a return." And it, it also takes a lot of that stress off the plate too. Being a small business owner, some people try to tackle it all. And if you're trying to do your own taxes, that takes away from my content, my ability to research, my ability to do shows. I'm trying to figure out my finances or dealing with the insurance companies and everything like that it really takes away from the actual product that I have so beyond the shows like I still do other things uh, that DraftKings will allow me to do sort of like uh, short videos I do NBC Universal stuff so SNY in New York I'll appear on there with one two-minute videos that's all done through the company so that's another part of content That i do nbc san francisco i think like fox philly stuff like that like there are so many people trying to get in the gambling game especially right now that i do think that there is a huge leverage point for people that can produce good-looking tv quality video because all these rsn's are just looking for curated content so when i was doing stuff for uh, Fox Philly, you know, they want to know about the Eagles. Give me an Eagles breakdown for one minute this week. Here's money. It's like, okay. And apparently like they don't have people that can feasibly do this. And (laughs) with gambling, I mean, I think it's 10 States as we speak right now, once California and Texas fall or even New York where you can do it mobily, there's a lot, like we thought there was a lot of money that came in in 2014, 2015 because of daily fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's going to be like that, but 10 times.
0: I know, I know. There's still like there are companies that I work with now that still there's just so much opportunity that's left on the table because of this stuff is just moving in in slow mo. But it seems like it seems like what you guys have going on at Mayo Media is it's basically like what I see myself doing in, in probably like three to five years. So I'm gonna have to ask you more about that whole accounting thing because I have no idea what's going on anymore. And I might just need to hire like Mayo Media Inc, to be honest with you, because you have the lighting, the studio, the accounting, all this kind of shit down. And it's all the stuff that I will be coming into very soon. So we'll talk off air about that stuff a little bit more. Now, you talk about like the future of betting when it comes to the platforms that are emerging and the state's starting to make it legal. And I think this is actually something that you talked about when we were in Vegas. I, I, I don't remember much of the conversation but you mentioned how like, you thought the future of the content that we're basically putting out is much more directed to betting. Now, the way I look at it is like fantasy football, the audience that I tend to capture mostly is season long. So when I'm looking ahead At the future, I'm like you know the people that are divested into season long are so they're so invested into it, right? Because it's such an engagement kind of thing. And we talked about this a little bit before we got on air about Dynasty. You're like I I feel like Dynasty's not really a big mover in terms of like you know making money or or where the industry is going in a sense. And from where I see, I see a lot of my audience starting to pivot to it because if I have my audience that's mainly season long and I just kind of keep pushing them Dynasty content, I'm like this is really fun, this is awesome, you guys should try it out. Again, I'm kind of like moving them like chess pieces and I can kind of control what avenues they go down like if I want to partner up with a platform that has dynasty leagues or whatever like I'll have leverage to be able to do that but for you you see more of like this whole betting thing is that from like I look at it from my audience's perspective and I'm like this is where I want to see the future going I don't really care about talking betting and and DFS and things like that like do you think betting when you say this is going to be such a big part of the future is that because like you really enjoy doing the content based around it or is it because there's no other way around it you're just like betting is going to be so massive that i'm putting my foot into the ground here and i'm going to you know take a big piece of the pie
1: Uh, well it's twofold really uh a gambling audience for football will will just reach a larger audience than dynasty fantasy football so like the wide net that is cast is season-long fantasy football because so many people play it's what i started doing is when i started doing content that's what i write about i still do content for season long fantasy football. I I do seven shows a week in football season. Four of them are dedicated to to season long fantasy football. I do a gambling show, I do a DraftKings show, and the rest like waiver wire pickups, rankings, start sits, viewer questions. You know The injury report is pretty ubiquitous across all of them. That can translate pretty well. Mm -hmm. And we do live shows and I take questions on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. Most of those questions are, do I start this guy or this guy? It's still that so that audience is way bigger than everything else. When I see like going into dynasty, you have one of two ways to go about it. The dynasty audience is not going to be that large and the revenue that comes along with dynasty is incredibly small compared to DFS and then especially compared to gambling. So if you do an affiliate with a site that says, "Hey, if you get someone to sign up for, you know, this dynasty league, they'll give you twenty-five bucks per sign up, or whatever it might be. We'll use that as an example. And if you get that same person to sign up for a gambling site, they'll give you two hundred dollars per person. Like it, the economics of it, just lean gambling.
0: Yeah, I, I guess it's subjective to the content that you're already putting out. And like for me, I, I think it it goes to the bigger question mark of just conversation in general. Is it more beneficial to? dive into a wider industry or is it more beneficial to kind of niche down and make sure that you're like the one killing within that niche? Because for me, again, it goes back to kind of cutting out the middleman. I don't want to have to rely on affiliates or sponsorships. So basically like for Dynasty, an example, we started a Slack channel for all the people that are in my audience that want to join Dynasty leagues and want to talk about Dynasty year round or whatever. And that might not like, I don't need need to be in there for that to keep functioning. So we have like over 300 people in it now and what we've done is like one one product that we uh, sell during the off season is is a season-long draft guide right it's basically like an online magazine or a private website or whatever and it sells really well to the season-long audience now if i can dip those people over to the dynasty and then create a dynasty rookie guide like that's where i think the money lies within the niches making sure that you're still their go-to within the niche season long is bases itself around engagement and dfs is not something i'm I'm passionate about so maybe that's why i steer away from it but i think there's a lot of money to be made in the niches if you for lack of a better term like do it correctly but
1: i i I think what you're trying to say is like if you're going to do a niche and Like, this is what happened to me with Fantasy Golf. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I was the best at Fantasy Golf, because I was literally the only person doing it for a while. (laughs) (laughs) So that put me to the top right away. Uh, In terms of something like Dynasty, like the market isn't big enough where you can be the 25th biggest person and make a ton of money. You need to be one or two. Gotcha. in sports gambling or DFS or season long, you can be like 80th down that list. And there's still an audience and enough money to go around that you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, it's a very good, it's a good point. I think that's why it kind of goes back to building, well, not back to, but like the, the main theme of, of this entire series is being able to build a brand through a proper foundation and loyalty through your audience. And so the way I look at it is like, anyone who buys the season long guide, right? If we have a thousand people or 2,500 people that do it, and you know, even if like 75% of them enjoy it, we could push the rookie guide onto them. And 50% of them are going to probably purchase that. So yeah, it is much smaller for Dynasty, but I do see it growing very, very quickly. So I think like being able to-
1: When you see it growing very, very quickly, do you mean amongst your audience or do you think in general? Because I think the the last number I saw is like 6% of people who play fantasy football play Dynasty.
0: Yeah, definitely not like the wide cast net. Definitely my audience more so I'm speaking of.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that it's very good to hammer down on a niche. It's even like podcasting right now. And you kind of hit this off the top that if you want to get into podcasting, let's say you want to have a show like my show, just doing my show isn't going to do you any good. Like at the time when I got into it, I listened to podcasts and I made sure that my show did not sound anything like theirs. I did a show that I would want to listen to that I felt comfortable hosting. I think the real money right now, or the real key to break in, Brad Evans has just done this and started off. JJ Zacharyson does ones that are like this, like I'm a blowhard, I wanna talk for two straight hours. But if you could corner the market on like seven minute daily podcasts, yeah. I think that's somewhere where you wanna be.
0: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I've, I've gone back and forth with the whole actual technical side of content. I feel like I just need to do what's natural to me. Most of my stuff is long form, like anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. And it's like edited and and it's put up long form. And I'll have comments throughout the summer when the volume is very high, I'll be like, oh, you know, you could have talked about all that shit in five minutes. I'm like, no, I couldn't because that's not how I get my my point across, right? So I guess it's like there is a mixture between finding what works in the audience and finding what works for you. And I think if you could find the perfect balance of that, but my, my tip would be like, figure out what's natural to you. You don't want to sacrifice the quality for whether it's quantity in, in time or audience or whatever, because that's how you're going back to building the foundation. Like when you're truly who you are in your content, people will start to resonate with you. And I think whatever you put out will probably work with the core audience that you've put together.
1: Well, I think you can be multiple things to multiple people. Like who I yeah. am in my writing is not who I am. I mean, it, it, there's crossover elements. Like I, One of the biggest compliments I ever got about my writing was when I'm reading this, I know it's Pat Mayo's column. I use very poor punctuation. I swear in my columns. Same. I write. I write like I talk. That's how I've always done. It. I remember when I started writing for magazines. They're like, you can't write like this. Like, well, this well, that's what I'm.
0: That's what I'm referring to. Like, you are exactly who you are, and like, you don't try to be Matt Berry. Like, I, I've caught myself like recently if I'm if I'm emailing like a company or a president of a, a company or something, the way I text, I'll use like literally the letter U for you and R for R, and I'll read over the email. And I was like Nick, and I write in all lowercase. I'm like, you can't send these emails to people that are like important or people that are, expect normal emails. And I mean, that's always the way I've done it. So when you said like you write exactly how you talk or you're on video, that's exactly how I do it too. And I think it's it's like, you don't need to do that, but you need to figure out what's right for you.
1: But that also doesn't mean like when I did end up getting a job at a magazine, I switched my writing style. I still, it was more technical. It was grammatically correct because it was appearing in print. And this is just the quality and the standards that this magazine had. I was still able to do that. I didn't hate it. Like I, it's mm. I don't do it anymore. It was such good exposure and such good experience just to learn about. I mean, like the magazines even exist anymore. Like everything moved online because people wanted more of that style. But if I talk about something like a ten-minute podcast versus you know, my shows go anywhere from forty-five minutes to two and a half hours, there's a different community around that because, listen, I listen to podcasts to learn stuff, kill time, and like have a laugh. The viewers of my show, they get. I mean, I feel like I always present good information. The analysis is a bit iffy, but you know that comes <laughs> along with the territory. But uh-huh. people like listening to my show for a hang. We're having a good time, we're having fun, we're yelling at each other. We try to make it as much within the professional framework of you know producing a show and talking about things that matter and hitting news items that right. you would try to talk. That's not how friends talk, but you can at least put that out there as that is the the vibe that you're giving it's more of a hangout podcast so it doesn't matter how long it is but i do think that i would be able to reach a separate audience like i could do a five minute to seven minute podcast and just like here are the facts here's the news and notes of the day and it could just be a completely different audience who consumes that i don't think that doing it one way or doing it the other way needs to be mutually exclusive i think you can do both but you're just not going to be reaching the same people if anything you're just going to broaden your net
0: yeah it's interesting like you look at it from a very intricate point of view and that you're like, oh, I could hit this audience with this. I could hit this audience with this. I don't think a lot of people look at it that way down to that almost like science of it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on when you're trying to like break into the industry. And again, I forget who I was talking about with this. I look at it like no matter what industry you're in, like you need to be a good marketer first. And right now what being good at marketing means is understanding the social media platforms because that's pretty much all marketing is right now. Like how how important do you think creating good content is if you can't market yourself correctly because there there are a lot of things like you said like you have to understand what works for what audiences what time length is going to be your content like are you going to be on video are you going to be on audio are you going to be writing like what platforms are you going to be putting that content on how important is that do you think compared to actual quality content i would say it's it's almost like 90% to 10% at this point
1: I think it depends on who you are too. Like if you have, and when you say quality content, if you have good content, you better be good at marketing. If you have the best content, you're in that like one, 2%. I am not, Uh, but there are people out there that are that don't do any marketing and people find them because they're so goddamn good at what they do. And that is such an outlier that trying to design yourself around that is a bit of a different. Like my expertise, especially in the fantasy business comes from the production side of things. Like my ability to produce high quality video is pretty unmatched amongst the independent places that go. Like the footballers do a really good job. I do a really good job. Sports grid guys, they do a really good job. Right. But like you know, ESPN is going to kill me every single time in terms of video quality. So I need to find a niche where my video is better than 95% of the people's videos that put videos on the internet. And that's the goal that I need to get to. And But that's where my expertise comes in. Other people like, have you ever had the fantasy football counselor on your show?
0: Yeah, he he was like episode maybe like 7 of this entire series 2 years ago. So,
1: I don't know if he's a genius or not, but he figured out that Instagram was he is. his and got huge on Instagram. His marketing is so good,
0: so good. People shit on him in the comments like they people will start to rewatch this now that it, this whole entire series that it's gaining a little bit more popularity and they'll see him on it and or if people leave comments like oh you should have a counselor on like jokingly, I'm like he's already been on because when I you know, when I saw it 2 years ago, I was like Dude, this guy, Instagram is one of the biggest social media platforms in the world. And he's basically the biggest content creator in our landscape on that platform. So of course, I want to talk to him, understand his mindset of like why he started on Instagram and like how he's done it so well. So yeah, I would side on the fact that he's a genius. I think what happens is that platform, people will see the success on Instagram and then people will flood to it. And that will start to filter out the quality. So he was first to market there, right? Of course he's gonna be he's gonna have a very big advantage in terms of like creating an audience. But once a million people see that he created that audience, they're all gonna want to go over to Instagram. And then for the people out there that think he's a shitty content creator, just this is just general rule of thumb for anyone, that will eventually start to filter itself out. And those people who are better at creating content that went to Instagram will start taking away from his audience. So yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the guy is a genius in terms of going over to Instagram for the marketing because he's not gonna make it you know elsewhere where there's already so many content creators doing it but yeah i mean he's an interesting guy too like and that those are the types of people i want to have on here that can think about like i can't wait to have the first person that blew blows up on tiktok on on this interview series to be honest
1: well it's funny that you mentioned that so like if i was to hire another person for this company uh and really try to figure out like what do i need like if we had a second producer or a graphics artist and that's all they did that would be hugely beneficial to the show save us a whole lot of time but if i could find someone who could do that and like hire someone who's like 20 one or twenty two who could have told me, like, not only about TikTok, but what Mm -hmm. TikTok even fucking is because I still have no idea, really. (laughs) It's kind of like Vine, I guess. If I had someone who was on, like, the precipice of all of these new social media things coming out, they could just tell me, like, hey, if someone had told me, like, Snapchat's going to be real big when Snapchat first started, or TikTok's going to explode. But don't you think that's what running a
0: business is in today's world, knowing that stuff? Because social media is marketing nowadays? I,
1: I think so, but I think that's, like, the natural extension of the next person that I need, like, once the company gets bigger, hopefully, that that is the sort of person that i can hire i'm trying to think of it from like and that's not thinking about it from a content perspective whatsoever i mean i would have to design like i've tried to do instagram but it's a lot the same as my twitter videos like i'm not creating exclusive content to instagram because i don't really know what i'm doing to tell you the truth like that is a very like people like mock people with these social media jobs because most of them are like absolute farces uh like if you go (laughs) to any sort of corporation like oh he's the social media guy some guy's nephew that they hired for the summer, like the CEO's son. There are people that are legitimately good at this stuff and stay on top of the industry industry trends and understand what sort of content goes in what sort of place. And that is very valuable stuff. I, I wish I knew more about it. I tried to learn about it. I'm just too I'm too old. I, I I just don't get it.
0: No, it's it's not a too old thing. You just have your priorities, like you understand what the ROI comes from and you focus your time there. I think there's I think there's a time and place for both things. I mean, you've had so much success and you have a ton of leverage in the platforms that you're on. So it doesn't seem like maybe there's a good investment into those platforms. But yeah, I mean, that's the kind of shit that, I'm always trying to experiment with, and I would suggest again for the audience, for the people that haven't made it to the level of where Pat is or trying to get to that level or are just starting, you can't be doing the same shit that people are doing now. You have to be looking at the TikToks, the Instagrams, the LinkedIn. Like It's, it's just as important to understand the platforms because that's where the audiences are built. Once you have the audience, you could flip that into a business. You could flip that into money. You could flip that into revenue, but you can't do it the other way around. You cannot turn money into an audience. You have to keep your eye out for those those kind of things all the time. It's always going to start off weird. Like you're always going to feel weird putting shit out on a new platform. You're always going to feel a little bit vulnerable like, Oh, no one's watching my shit. I feel weird. It's embarrassing. But like, that's how everybody started. Like everybody started writing on a blog that got zero readers. My first few videos, I'm sure got like two views for the first six months. That's how it all starts. And you have to understand that when you are starting, like the first 10 subscribers you get are going to feel the same as the first, you know, when I hit 10,000 subscribers, when I hit 35,000 subscribers, like that's going to feel the same to you as when you hit three hundred. 50 when you're starting out don't look at the people that you're striving to be because you'll get that same high of hitting the benchmarks along the way that are relative to where you're at in the process
1: yeah and just even to pile onto that consistency and repetition are the two greatest things you can do if you're trying to get into this no matter what you're trying to do you like say Experiment with different platforms, but don't do it once and, like, ah, that didn't really work. And then never do it again. Part of the reason that my podcast became popular is because I release shows on the same day at every time, like the same time on the same day of the week, regardless of the season. Like, I have shows that come out every day at 5 a.m. Before that, it was three times a week. They used to come out at 1 p.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And it was like that for two years. Then I changed the schedule up, but people knew where they could find me. It's not like I released three podcasts in three days and then nothing for two weeks. So that's how you isolate an audience.
0: 100%. Because they, they have no Idea what to expect, and like that's that's the underlying thing there. I, I've come to realize especially with people that I wanna bring onto my team to help me out. I appreciate hard work and consistency 10 times more than I appreciate talent and even understanding social media because you could always teach that shit. But at the end of the day, most people will not be able to work and, and grind for a really long period of time. Like you just saying like, yeah, we did you know, five shows a week for it was like two years or whatever. You like throwing that out there nonchalantly. That is an unbelievable amount of work to be able to produce that level of content. And most people that get into it, if you told them upfront, we're like, yo, if you did five videos a week, what makes this, this so tough is that nothing's promised up front. But if, if you were to tell someone like, I want you to do five 45 minute videos a week for the next three years, and I'll guarantee you 30,000 subscribers on YouTube, I think most people would take the deal the hard part is getting over that initial mental hump of the other thing is like talent is there's hard work and consistency. And I do value that above talent, but there is also a facet to it where it's like, you do still have to be good enough, right? There are people that are going to start off and never get a level of success. And it might be through luck. It might be never finding that like first to market niche or platform or whatever but like at the end of the day joe said it last week he's like yo pat is like the real deal when it comes to being an on-air personality and he'll be working at a tv station soon if you want and there is absolutely a place for people like that but like what what do you think about talent being something that gets you i almost look at it like a, a floor and ceiling play when it comes to fantasy football, right? You have guys who are like, have a nice floor, guys who have a nice ceiling. I think hard work and consistency will make you uh, can make you a very big player in the content world, but you still have to be a level of good or great to really achieve like a tremendous amount of success. Does that make yeah, any it- sense that I just ramble on for like two hours? No, no, I I get what you're saying. I don't think you
1: necessarily need to be great, but you need to be differentiated from everyone else. And then you do need to be good at what you do. Like, I I, just to bring up the example of the fantasy football counselor again. Just I I had Joe on my show. I I had him on the show too, and like it was fire the entire time. I didn't agree with one thing that he said, (laughs) but we were going back and forth, and like we talked after the air. It was like it's all friendly. It's it's all in good fun. And people give him such a tough time because he has the craziest things to say. But always. I watch all his Instagram videos. I'm like, what the fuck is he going to say next? This is great. But there's like a real talent in that. Like Uh he he gets what prods people and he leans into that. And he's that type of personality. So he's really... You're that around himself. What I do is completely different than what you do. We do the same thing. We make YouTube videos, we both host shows, we both talk about fantasy football, but how I approach and how you approach it are two completely separate things. Again, because of the production background that I had, I think that really gives me an advantage over a lot of people in the space because you know I trained to both be behind the camera and on camera. I do say um and I say I mean and like a lot (laughs) Uh but not to the extent of where it gets so annoying you can't listen to me speak like that's another one where I've listened to podcasts before and it's people like stammering the entire time that even if you do a long soliloquy you're not stumbling over your words the entire time you're actually making a concise point you're just saying a lot of words to do it. I do exactly the same thing. It's little techniques like that and just having presence. Like I remember one of the first things that the uh, GM of fantasy told me when I was on air, he's like, you know what you should do? Wear really colorful shirts. And I do wear, uh, like not right now, but on my show, I wear shirts. Like you look at it like, What the hell is that idiot wearing? Mm-hmm. But he said the whole goal, and this was at the time, was this station is going to be watched primarily in sports bars with no sound on. You want to make yourself look that if someone is watching with no sound, be like, what the hell was that guy saying? I got to find out. Animation, throwing your hands up, pointing at the camera, yelling, loud shirts, brightness. Like you don't want to be a dingy guy in a hoodie in the dark in your room. Like people are going, what the hell is that?
0: I love this. This is a, you keep like describing me. You you describe my studio, you describe me. I'm in I'm in a actually I'm in a bright yellow hoodie so I guess it works a little bit.
1: Bright um, see bright, I wear hoodies on the show too,
0: but they're all bright. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, those are things I definitely I definitely don't really think of. I just kind of get on camera. The other thing with like uh when you have like such high level of production, people expect it. Like Pat, you you this is not a, this is not a bad thing, but like you look the same in all of your videos. Like you're, you're very well put together and nicely presented. A lot of the times when I make my videos, I'm just like tired. And that's the way my personality is going to come off in that video. I'll get on and be like, yeah, I feel like shit today, but here's what we're going to talk about. Right. And I'll, I'll be able to use that in, in the sense, it's like the energy for that video will be just like my, the way I personally feel. And I feel like when the production quality gets there, like they, you know, you put yourself on a pedestal where you can't, You can't slack off at all. You can't have days where you look or feel tired because the audience expects some level of energy that's almost unrealistic. Do you ever run into a problem like that? Yeah, all the time. So
1: I think it really (laughs) depends on your guests. And I do, I actually strategically structure my guest schedule in a way where I think you want to have a certain level of energy for every show. And I try to keep that same level at every show. Now, if I have one guest who is super energetic, then I don't need to be the energy person. I can sit back, I can be relatively calm and let that person kind of go crazy. And if we're talking about trying to get to like level 100 energy, if that guy has 80, I only need to be at a 20. There's a nice balance there. But okay. I have other guests, and this is what I've especially found: like when I do the DraftKings show or bring on people from the DFS industry, I've tried to weed out some of like the the bad, the worst guests, and and use guys that are really good. But when I do a DraftKings show, I'm not a great DraftKings player. I love to play. I love to talk about it. I love to talk about the strategy. But the people that I bring on my DraftKings show are like legit pros that win a ton of money doing. It. And if you're someone who spends all day on spreadsheets, the chances of you being a really engaging personality on the other end of an internet call (laughs) is going to be pretty low. So, those are the shows that I need to bring the energy for. So, I can get, so I need to be at the 70 if they're at a 30. If they're at a 10, I need to be at a 90. And sometimes it just doesn't gel that way. So, there's that level you have to think about. But, like, makeup goes a long way. I'm not going to lie to you. I learned how to do that again back in school to do my own makeup. I've, I think I've worn makeup every time on camera from 2012 on, even when I was shooting shitty green screen videos by myself in my awful apartment. I do I would still put on, yeah, back then I was putting on a suit jacket because I thought you need to look professional. But I was <laughs> wearing makeup. My hair was always kempt. I never have any facial hair on the shows. This is just keeping that consistency. You're right. I do kind of strive for that, that if people are tuning into my show, they know what they're getting. They don't necessarily know the content. They might not know the guests, but they know it's going to be me. And I'm right. going to look the same. I'm going to sound the same. And I'm going to deliver the sort of content that they've come accustomed to. It's not not going to be completely off the rails today, even though it might seem like that from time to time.
0: That's interesting. I guess most of the shows I do are... You know, besides these are pretty much solo shows, maybe not all of them. I guess I do a, a lot of shows where people come on and maybe that's something I need to kind of think more of in terms of like what the other person is gonna bring and what energy I need to bring. Because normally it's it's just me sitting in front of the camera. So I'm like, if I'm only at a 20%, like that's what the audience is getting today. They, they don't have a choice. We're not gonna pick up the other 80% from someone else because it's just, just me. And I guess it, it's worked for me up to this point, but maybe that's something I could probably improve upon going forward.
1: I do a solo show every Friday during football season I, maybe I mix it up like half solo half sometimes I'll have a guest where I run through mm-hmm. the injury report DraftKings ownership for that week maybe some pivot plays maybe some like bets that I like it's just sort of an all-in-one show but it's exactly. me talking for 45 minutes straight I've gotten better at it over time because I do think that hosting a show by yourself is like the single biggest challenge that you can do in this industry it's just weird especially Mm -hmm. when you first start doing it, you never know when to pause. And that was always my biggest problem. Mm -hmm. Like I barely pause as it is. But when I'm doing a show by myself, it's just go, 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 go. And maintaining that level of energy for 45 minutes is fucking exhausting. That around minute 27, it's like, whoa. And then the energy changes and that's not good. Like even if you're at a 20 the entire time, if you stay at a 20 the entire time, at least that's consistent. You don't want to go from 90 to 30 to get a second wind back up to 70 yeah. back to being tired down to 10. Like the show just seems weird.
0: No, you're right. It's uh, I guess I, I started off doing, I did, I think, I think the only thing I did was solo shows for like the first two years I did it. So I got so used to it. So when I changed up and started doing like interviews and having people on the channel, that was weird for me like that was very challenging for me because the whole time i wanted to jump in and like talk and interrupt and be like no no this is my show like this is what i want to say I'm like fuck like there needs to be a balance there in figuring out how does this person end their sequence how does this person transition or segue into the next part of it that's for me what I found to be the most difficult for the solo shows that's something I got used to I don't know why I was just always kind of natural in front of the camera so I got used to that like very quickly and keeping my energy up for the entire time keeping it consistent at least was I guess what you brought up something that wasn't too difficult for me to find out we've covered a lot we covered a lot. We, we, of, we
1: have. This has been fun.
0: Yeah, this is, this is a great talk. I'm sure the audience is going to find it super valuable, so I'm excited to pump this bad boy out.
1: One thing I did want to kind of hammer home is that when you asked me about the DraftKings things earlier, one of the big things that I have really enjoyed working with DraftKings is that they've been really good to work with. And I think that a lot of people have bad experiences if they go to a bigger place uh, or a larger company that they just get bogged down and you have to do this. Like I remember when I first started, they were like, oh yeah, we need to have like a meeting every day uh, for half an hour, like Monday through Friday. Jeez. And then like after two weeks, it was like, look, you hired me to do the product. Can you just let me do the product? And they were like, okay, that's basically what they do. If I need anything, they reach out, like I reach out to them, they get back to me right away. If they need something from me, you know, if they just shoot me a text, be like, yeah, I can do that for you, no problem. I'll do that later today. But the ability that they've given me as a part of our partnership to work sort of as, a, like I'm in a different country, I, I'm in a office with one other person like our efficiency level is off the charts compared to somewhere where even when I was at fantasy we had 35 people in the office like it has to go through so many rungs they've been so good to just kind of let the town like you hired me for my expertise in this one thing you want me to talk about sports don't feed me what I should be talking about I know what to talk about this is what I do and they've been so good about that that I feel like I lucked out with finding a business partner uh, like a relationship that has really worked out really well And I'd caution people like ask, ask around if you're ever doing trying to partner up with a different company or maybe someone you don't know, like I'm sure someone has in the past and they can tell you stories and out of DraftKings, everyone you talk to is like thumbs up. Like they're really good to work for.
0: Yeah, that's why I was so interested in hearing your side of it because like, I mean, right now I'm I'm not a huge content creator by any means, but we have like 35,000 subscribers and we'll probably be at, you know, 50 or 60 by the end of this upcoming season. And that's not nothing. Like eventually I will start probably getting calls from companies like DraftKings or FanDuel for a similar situation to what you have. And the way I look at it, I was like, you know, I I don't think I'd ever, I looked at you the same way I saw myself in a few years. And I was like, I was really surprised you took that deal because I don't see myself ever going over to a company like that. Like one, I I don't ever want to have like a, someone telling me how to create my content or like what I need to be doing throughout the day. So it's cool that they kind of give you the free reign on that. That was the thing, like with big companies, it just seems like they move so slowly and I'm just like, I can't be moving at that pace. And there's so many loopholes that you got to jump through in order to change. Like one thing here or one thing there. And I was like, I I don't know if I could ever really get down with that but I mean I guess if if companies are open-minded and they understand the product that they're buying into which was you as a person and your and your show and they let it run like that like that's something I guess I'd be open to hearing more about
1: yeah and I think there's gonna be the ability for that with all of these new content providers like even Mm -hmm. if if for whatever reason like I'm not with DraftKings this time next year or even if we just change up our deal a little bit and all of a sudden the Pat Mayo experience lives on the Mayo Media YouTube page Right. Uh, but it's the Pat Mayo experience brought to you by DraftKings that on my show, you know, I don't talk about FanDuel. I don't talk about anything else. I only talk about DraftKings. It's the same show, but instead of owning the content, they're just the title sponsor of it.
0: Outside of fancy sports, I mean, it seems like you've got a lot going on. Like you're very interested in the production and the business side of things. Are there any projects that you might be working on now or that you could see yourself working on within the next, you know, two, five, 10 years that you're very passionate about that kind of have no resemblance to what you're doing now. Maybe, maybe they're, you know, kind of intertwined in some way or another, but some kind of passion that, you know, people would be like, oh, wow, that's really interesting that Pat's doing that. I never would have thought he would kind of, you know, chase that passion. You have anything like that going on?
1: I do. Uh, most of it's all in the outline phase right now. Like I'm, I'm going to have to eventually dial back on the show a little bit to accomplish some of my other goals, but expanding the business, I kind of want to get into buying, buying real estate. Uh, okay. That seems somewhat fun, or at least trying to find different avenues to diversify my biggest problem with a, with this job. And it's always the fear that I have that even though I'm doing well right now that it feels like tomorrow, this industry could be gone. I don't know why I feel that way. Cause that's not like the reality that exists, but I always prepare Like, this is the last job I'm ever going to have. Like, what the hell am I going to do if this goes away? So I try to look at different business ventures that way. So that stuff sort of intrigues me. So do I want to get into this? Do I want to get into that? So I have to take time to research it and plan. I'm married. I have a kid. I have another one on the way. My priorities have changed. I can't just leave Toronto, move to the States, go live in Manhattan for like no money uh, and try to create YouTube channels anymore. Like I have a family to look out for my floor for everything needs to be a whole lot higher. I can't just, I can't take a risk on something tomorrow that can go completely up in the air, which is I good and bad in a way. It, it makes me sort of a more responsible person. But the reason that I have the job now is because I risked, I had nothing to lose. So I was able to risk everything to, to get into this business in the first place. Like if I failed, like, well, I'm exactly where I was no big deal like losing everything. Now I have a lot to lose in terms of like my personal life. Uh, So I need to be able to make decisions that way. But I think there's just a lot of non-sport stuff that I want to do. And I'll probably pursue that maybe sometime in the new year, maybe it's two years. But I do think that if I'm able to not necessarily branch out diversity wise, in terms of what I do business, like in terms of business, if I can do that in terms of content, where I'm not pat only the sports guy Mm -hmm. Uh, and people see that on my show like i don't always do sports i do a lot of pop culture stuff i do a lot of regular talk show type stuff that i think i can try to branch that out a little bit but it's not something that i want to do for once a month kind of thing like if it's something i'm going to do i need to figure out a proper schedule and how that actually integrates with what i'm doing day to day and then all of a sudden maybe i have two verticals that hey this one's actually doing a whole lot better it was almost like if i do the two hour show and the seven minute show can those coexist? How does that work? It's something I would like to figure out before doing it once and be like, well, I don't know if this is working.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I got you. It's funny that you say like, you know, uh, what if our industry like goes away tomorrow? I mean, like we're in an industry where that's like, I mean, it's not likely, but among other industries, like you have gambling becoming like illegal again, you never know what's going to happen on the legal side of things. You have the NFLPA, like you're dealing with these possible holdouts or lockouts or whatever. It's never going to happen, of course, because the owners will lose out on too much money, but we have a lot of random avenues where like fantasy football or DFS or whatever, gambling could go away. So it's something that's definitely like I've thought about before, but never thought about to the point where I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? It's more like, oh shit, I'm fucked. If that happens, I'm not going to think of a plan behind it. But I feel like, you know, it's smart to be thinking that way. And you have a lot of skills outside of just, you know, being a content creator that, I honestly thought you were going to say, like, write a, write a screenplay or direct a movie or something like that. That is why I got
1: into this business to begin with. I wanted to be a writer-director. Uh, turns out I don't have that skill set. I think Mike Leone kind of hit me with this when I first started from Daily Roto. That, you know, he's like, the, the biggest skill that you can have in daily fantasy or in most things is just know what you don't know and know the people that know what you don't know and just listen to them or become friends with them. And then you can really expand your knowledge base. And I think that self-assessment and knowing what skills you have that are good. And there are so many people that try to overreach. Like, I wanna do this and I wanna do that. It's like, I tried to do basketball once. I was like, I don't know anything about basketball. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, I could host a show about basketball if I only had to ask people questions, but my show doesn't work like that. Like. I'm a host and I'm an analyst, and I have other analysts on, and I argue with them. It's you know the first take esque model, not as quite as yelly, but you know there's no moderator. I'm both the moderator and one of the people yelling at each other. Uh, if I have if I try to do something about a sport I don't know or a topic I don't know, it's, it's gonna put me in a pretty shitty position for the shows that I try to do. But I think the content creation is going to be around for a while. That's why I wanna try to right. tackle some of these other avenues, whether it be TikTok or whatever's next after TikTok, mm-hmm. and maybe try to exploit one of those and try to do content in a different way, or try to do things like a documentary series. Like that's something now that has more interest to me than writing a screenplay and directing movie is, you know, can I, especially with all the Netflix money or the Amazon Prime money that's out there, that if I can come up with a good idea, I know the production behind it. If I can structure a story the right way, I know how to edit, I know people who know how to edit and put together television. Could I do a six part documentary series? I think so, I just don't have any good ideas.
0: I, th- I think you should just make a movie and upload it onto the DraftKings YouTube page one day and see what they say. There you go. You have your audience. You have a platform for it. You could do like a behind-the-scenes doc. You should uh, get the, the sixth or eight biggest content creators in our space and do like a documentary behind the scenes, not an interview series, but like travel and see how they do their content creation behind it. I think that would be a pretty interesting series to actually put on the, on the DraftKings YouTube. Plus it gives the audience a a bit more background of who you are like personally, because obviously those, those interactions where you get like the more like vlog style of uh, a video is I think like super valuable to the audience, build that loyalty and that, and that, that personal touch with you. So that's a, a, a decent idea i don't know if DraftKings would ever let you do that but
1: well I, I don't know you how about you cut this out of the show and i'll go pitch it to DraftKings. <laughs> i'll give you a five percent finders fee on this idea
0: i'm in i'm, I'm <laughs> gonna put it in the show but i also want that five percent
1: all right cool.
0: so two more random questions best purchase you've made under a hundred dollars
1: can it be at a hundred dollars exactly
0: um we'll we'll say you use the coupon yeah go
1: yeah uh i put a hundred dollars on any will to win the masters four years ago and it paid for half my wedding
0: Jesus Christ, what was the odds on it?
1: 150 to one.
0: Woo, God damn. Okay, well, I guess uh, <laughs> that works and it's probably better $100 spent than most of the people that have come on here. Everyone's always got like a weird apparel. There was like mittens, there was like a type of pants. This guy's over here turning fucking $100 into 15 grand. I love it. All right, so bold prediction for the fantasy football or it could be fantasy sports industry as a whole over the next one, three, five, ten 10 years.
1: I will say my prediction for the fantasy football industry is that season long will continue to be large and be this net, but the entire industry will push people towards gambling.
0: Okay, I could see that. I'm, I'm pissed about it, but it's <laughs> 100% going to happen. Do
1: you, like, you're pissed about it like you don't gamble? Like Gambling's fun.
0: Gambling's whatever to me. I just understand that the leverage as a content creator is creating valuable content for the audience and I just don't have the passion for gambling and DFS I wouldn't be able to do what I do three five seven videos a week talking about gambling in a sense like you know we do our podcast and like of course there's I'm going to be talking about like teams I'm like yeah I really like this team in this game I can I don't make even like Joe Hoka came on my channel Once a week, like every Saturday he would come on, we talk DFS and I was, you know, the co-host and I was the guy who kind of maneuvered the the video through its hour or whatever, asking him questions because he's more the DFS guy than I am. But like even that I didn't enjoy it and it wasn't because Joe wasn't good. It wasn't because there wasn't energy. I just like the content itself is not something I enjoy. So if the industry really moves that way. I'm going to be like, fuck, I just, you know, I'm going to have to find different types of content to put out, even though season long will still be very prevalent. So,
1: Well, I I think it's a bit different. Like, I I agree with you that actual daily fantasy sports content is can be tedious and can be tough because there's so much game theory strategy and trying to project out this player floor versus upside. Gambling is like the other way. Gambling is rudimentary. Like, you could have hot take guy give you three picks this week but like yeah. once, you, once you start gambling you're like oh game and that's the thing that people are finding is that yeah season-long fantasy football is fun but like i'm sure that it's the same thing with you as it is with me you know week one i'm doing great business by week 14 like business <laughs> yeah. isn't as booming anymore uh in yeah. terms of views and downloads you know it doesn't go away gambling because i can still go I can put down a hundred bucks in week one. I can put down the same hundred bucks I've won or lost. If I have more money on something else in week 14, it just keeps people engaged and it's easy. It's so easy to do. Like I don't need to worry about the waiver wire or worry if this guy's injured or this guy needs to, I need to make a trade with someone. There's fun in that. There's also fun in being like, I just woke up on a Sunday morning Are the giants are, you know, the giants are favorite over anyone, anyway, but let's say the Cowboys <laughs> are three and a half point favorites in New York against the giants why is Dallas going to cover that three and a half? You might know nothing about football and have a really strong opinion or know a ton about football and be kind of wishy-washy about it, but you can put your hundred bucks down either way.
0: No, you're a hundred percent. Right. I think, I think like the fact that gambling is going to be so big, also opens itself up to having different opportunities within the space like I love player props like player props are fun to talk about because from a fantasy football season long perspective you can really get in the grit when it comes to player props and be like this is why he's gonna hit over you know 67 and a half rushing yards and it would be the exact same analysis I would give for my regular fantasy football videos that week so the fact that it's becoming so big there's gonna be a lot of like niche games where I think I could eventually spin to it but yeah I mean like I have two of my friends that put up a, a gambling show on my channel every Sunday throughout the in season stuff, and I that's probably I just find the shit that I don't enjoy that I know is gonna be popular and kind of outsource to people that do enjoy it. it it's no different.
1: Like, I, there, I there's a UFC show on the Pat Mayo Experience that I don't host, Paul hosts it, and I move behind the camera and produce the show. He knows about MMA, he's passionate right. about it. I, I hate it. We have access to one of the best guests of all time in terms of knowing about MMA, and they have such a good rapport. It's not like It's like just people. a
0: weird, there's just like a weird disconnect, the delta between like for we have the same thing because your your show is the Pat Mayo experience. My YouTube channel is just my name, Nicker Colano. So it's like when people maybe haven't been on my channel in a few months and they come on and they see I have uh, another two of my friends that do a, a Dynasty only focused show every Wednesday. I come on with them half the time, half the time I don't. So if someone hasn't come to my channel for a little while and then they pop on and you know Noah and Mike are on their screens and I'm not there, they're like, where the fuck is Nick? Because they've been they've been used to seeing me two and a half years by myself. So it's something that like I've struggled with outsourcing the content in particular, because I always want to be the face of my brand. And maybe I should slap my face on my logo like you have over there to make it more prevalent. But like, it's just a, it's a weird thing to have your, you know, your name in the brand itself and to have it so focused on who you are and your face in particular and then have it outsourcing to other people you know like you've dealt with the same thing i have in a sense
1: oh absolutely and then eventually you have enough trust in your audience like right. if it's out if it's outsourcing ufc to people that are better than me or outsourcing yeah. like even like i've had uh, meanie and Gary and on to do baseball shows for me because i don't give a shit about baseball anymore i don't even follow it uh, why would anyone want to hear from me so when you come to the channel and you come to the Pat Mayo experience, you're going to hear my take on the stuff that I know about. And then eventually where I've been doing this so long, people trust me to tell them like, Hey,
0: you want to hear from these two guys right, talking about this. And right. then they'll
1: tune into that too.
0: Yeah, it's like also your responsibility pretty much as a leader to make sure that you're putting you know, the right people in the right place to give them that information. So you're, again, kind of acting as like a middleman to make sure that the audience gets the value that they're wanting, whether it's dynasty football or or UFC or whatever, and you're putting those guys in the right place to, to do so. So it's like naturally weaving them in. Like the the guy that does the dynasty for me, I had slowly started like ramping him up and he did a season long video with me for the whole last summer. So by the time I was like, yo, do this show by yourself or with one other person or whatever, you know, the entire audience um, was familiar with him. So they didn't have problems with him. But it's just like a, it's just something that I've, I've noticed I've dealt with. And since you kind of have a very similar setup to me, it was just like, oh, you know, we kind of relate on that point.
1: And it works twofold as well. Like those shows end up being really good because they're different than my shows and they cover different topics that they bring in their own audience. And then people that they bring in and be like, Hey, what are these other shows that are on this channel with this other guy? Let's watch it that way. Like people come in, people come out. And it's a good way to like, whether it be, you know, the YouTube algorithm and the YouTube searching, the fact that I have more stuff going on that like, if people don't give a shit about fantasy football and they only give a shit about fantasy baseball, if I have no fantasy baseball on my channel, no one's ever going to find me. But if I do have fantasy baseball shows, they'll find my show hosted by two other people and be like, Hey, and maybe I want to get into MMA. Maybe I want to get into golf. Let me click on this one and see what it's all about. Like you do, find audience and grow your audience that way as well
0: no it's an interesting point it's just something that you you think about a lot you should not struggle with but it's you know diversifying the content is something that it happens gradually over time and you've done a fantastic job of doing it something that I'm leaning into a little bit more and more as I as I progress but this conversation was super super valuable especially on a personal level for me because you've done a lot of the things that I hope to do in the coming years so uh Pat thank you so much for for coming on and just kind of sharing the knowledge with the audience as well as myself, I know they're going to find a ton of value in it. So where can they find you? I'm sure it's been linked down below your video this entire time anyways, but everything will be linked in the description that Pat has going on. So any parting words for the audience?
1: Yeah, Pat Mayo Experience, uh, you talked about the DraftKings YouTube channel, the video is up there, but the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast, people go subscribe to that, leave your five-star reviews, it always goes a long way uh, to just, it, it helps keeping the show coming out and out and out. If I can do 10 hours a week, that's great, you know, the more people subscribe, the larger the audience, maybe I can do 11 hours or 12 hours or cover different things, like leaving those reviews and like just even subscribing, even if you're not listening to every one, but you have it on like auto-download, you have no idea how much that means to podcast producers because that really does pay the bills and keep the lights on for everyone else. And on Twitter at VPME, fantasynational.com, like I talked about, if you're into golf, I'd go check that out. And you can find all my writing up on either Golf Digest or on dkplaybook.com.
0: Well said, sir. So if y'all go over and follow him at all those platforms, that would be a beautiful thing. Make sure you leave him that five-star rating and review at the Pat Mayo Experience. Make sure you slam that thumbs up button if you enjoyed the video. If you found this valuable informational, just share it with people that would also find it that as well. So thank y'all for joining us. If you stuck around for this long, we got nothing but love for you and we will see you on next week's video. Thank you again, Pat. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank